Today's episode is brought to you, fittingly, by Jacoby, a new novel by William Ritter, which is the first in a series. It's advertised as Sherlock meets Doctor Who, and the reviewer at Nerdist says that it pretty much fits the bill. He says it's exactly the thing you want to curl up with a cup of tea and inhale in a window seat on a rainy autumn day. Mr. Jacoby, the character, the main character, is somewhat tenantish. Our protagonist is equal parts Molly Hooper, Rose Tyler, and herself, and the murderous plot beautifully melds modern storytelling and classic fables. Jacoby by William Ritter is on sale now from Algonquin Books. Now entering Nerdist.com. My name is Ben Blacker. I'm the creator of the Nerdist Writers Panel series. Follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker and let me know who you'd like to see on this series. I'm always looking for new ideas for TV show, movies, books, comics, anyone you like who writes things. Do me a favor, though, and check the archive to see if we've already had that person on whom you would like to hear from. Uh, I am a television writer. I've written for Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently on the Netflix uh, DreamWorks show Puss in Boots. Uh, I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour stage production in the style of old-time radio, which is a weekly podcast here on the Nerdist Network. For more information, visit thrillingadventurehour.com. Each and every Nerdist Writers Panel benefits 826LA, the national writing program for students. Uh, please check them out at 826LA.org. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel, and it's hosted by Ben Blacker, where he gets a bunch of writers, and he asks them lots of questions, and it's starting now, so this will be the end of the theme. We're doing it. This is it. This is how we start. Uh, right. <laughs> Chris, thank you for being here. Oh, it's my pleasure. Uh, what a privilege. Oh, come on. No, no, really. It is. It is. And also to, you know, be able to go through Meltdown. That's a, that's a great start to the day. It is. And it's a nice, I think, a nice trip, uh, end to your trip to Los Angeles. It really is. It's been a pretty crazy week. So it's, you know, it's a, sort of a five-day lightning stop tour of, you know, meetings and screenings and all that craziness, really. Uh, and it's all, this is all around Grace Point, yes. which premiered when this comes out last week. Um, and you were telling me downstairs, and I think this is worth repeating for the audience, which I thought was very funny, that people have been saying congratulations to you. Yeah, I, uh, yeah, I didn't know whether it was a, a British <laughs> thing. Myself and Jane Featherston, who's the mm-hmm. other, who's the head of Kudos, who made Broadchurch and, and Grace Point, which is like the UK mm-hmm. uh, drama company, and it's owned by Shine. Uh, so we've been meeting all sorts of people this week, and even, you know, we had lunch with uh, David Madden at Fox yesterday in the commissary, and people were coming up going, congratulations, congratulations, all week people have been saying it and um uh we were like we, it hasn't gone out yet you know what what's that no it's not been on tv it could you know we could get a zero rating and um because uh, in Britain you would never it, it never happens you know and and I, because it's you, you never know what's going to happen when a show goes out so and then sort of gradually I'm realizing through the week oh the congratulations is you got a show made. Yeah. It got on air. You know, you're getting. You've got posters. Um, uh, so that's been really interesting. There's a, a million culture shocks you have as a I Brit coming to LA. I love the idea that people are congratulating you on posters. I'm I drove very, by a bus stop. And... <laughs> it's true though. It's like you've got digital posters. Yeah. You've got ads. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's it, it's the the great thing of being a Brit in LA because it's it's you know that thing about the the. You know, Britain and America being two cultures divided by a common language or whatever that quote is, uh, but but uh, let alone then the sort of industry of LA and uh, the, uh, as a writer coming yeah. into that, a writer producer coming into that, it, there's a million. It's like coming into a, a a court with all the etiquette that you think I don't know, I don't know which chair to sit in, I don't know which you know. Am I gonna? You sort of uh, who do I who do I not speak to? Who do I speak to? Uh, all that kind of stuff. So there must have been a lot of that. I mean, you probably even relatively had a pretty easy development process for yes, this because yes. Fox came to you and, and to the producers. And said, yeah, and there was, a, the, it, there was a bidding process for it as well. So oh, there, there right. were other people interested. That's and uh, that, uh, So we, it's, it's had a relatively mm-hmm. uh, smooth ride, I think. And, and uh, Peter Rice at Fox was very keen on it. He was, you know, week three in the UK. He was emailing going, could this work in the US? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, also, we were quite definite about it. I mean, certainly in the pitching process, when we came over, it wasn't like, 
it wasn't like we really needed to remake this show. It wasn't a, a, mm-hmm. a, a defining moment for us. We were just like, there's a lot of interest, mm-hmm. so why wouldn't we give it a go? But mm-hmm. our pitches were essentially, we've done this show, Broadchurch. It's, it's done really well. It's connected with an audience. We kind of know how it works. Because often with shows you don't, you know, <laughs> particularly with a new show, you have no idea and you've got to figure that out. Yeah. So it was very much if and, and particularly because people were saying we want that show just in an American milieu mm-hmm. with American actors and landscape. So I, a lot of times we just we, we just said, well, look, this is how we think it will work and this is what we want to do with it. And if you don't want it like that, that's fine because we really don't need to do it because we've got other things Hmm. to do. So it was an interesting process because I don't think actually people aren't used to, you know, the network executives aren't necessarily used to people coming into the room going, it's fine if you want it, but if you don't, then, you know, we'll just go and have some coffee. Um, Well, I would imagine... You you've also you've already made the show you wanted. To yeah, I, I think so that's this very translation true. process, this one to one translation, is kind of a it, it's a weird creature. It, it is. I mean, it's a it, it was just a fun thing to do. It was more like why wouldn't you do it if you've, <laughs> if you've got the opportunity? Um, uh, and it was a privilege. Any show is always an an interesting privilege to make and to get anything onto screen and through that process. You you're very lucky to be able to do that. And with this, it was very much, let's give this a go, because this hasn't really been done before yeah. at this speed and also retaining an actor. And and, um, uh, and we've all seen the terrible, terrible American remakes of British shows. Sure. I've equally seen some really great ones. I think The Office is a masterclass yeah. in a remake. I kind of prefer it to the original. That means I now don't get to go back. into. I get stopped at yeah. customs at the UK now. <laughs> this is why your flight was delayed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, they're not, they just, uh, yeah, yeah, I put that on the customs form. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, a shameless is a terrific, mm-hmm. uh, a, a terrific um, version of, yeah. of a UK original. So they they can happen. But those also, I mean, you look at The Office is a great example of something yeah. that had to eventually find its voice as its own. I think that's thing. true. Yeah. Um, and and I was particularly interested in Grace Point watching the pilot last night. Yeah. Uh, in your writing, your approach to writing this tenant character. Yes. Uh, and. Were you writing a different character in the U.S. adaptation, or was he was he the same guy? I think he retains the same characteristics, but with a few different specifics. And what you see is that grows over time. I mean, the thing is, in a in a pilot, and particularly with this pilot and this show, you have I don't know eighteen characters to introduce in, yeah. in forty two minutes, um, and so it's a it's a uh, what you get in the the, the pilot, and in, really in the first two, you're, you're really just being introduced to them. Mm-hmm. So um, what you'll see over time time um is is that character diverges and becomes its own beast and and i think david calibrates and nuances his performance mm. to a very different character so um so at the beginning really you know my job i've only written the pilot and then um uh, dan futterman and Anya Epstein, who mm-hmm. are the, the showrunners really from episode two it's their baby it's their beast I, I sort of you know I don't know what the metaphor is. I kind of <laughs> built the car and then put it on the road, and they can drive it where they want now. You that know, I, yeah, it's okay. <laughs> they were involved in building the car too, so you know, um, it, it was really putting it in their hands and mm-hmm. going. And actually, uh, most of the time, it was a question of going. You can be bold, you know, and you can mm. you can move it along. But but equally, um, the network were very much we want what you had in the UK. You know, so interesting. I, I, part of the part of the thing of these television series, especially the U.S. television series, which are kind of written as they're being shot, Yes, um, is is that discovery process, mm-hmm. uh, figuring out what the show is as you go along. Yeah. Uh, did you have that? I'm, I'm particularly interested in Broadchurch and how how it was scripted and then how it was shot and like yes. building that mystery and and oftentimes we find our characters with the actors. Was that the uh-huh. case for that? Or, for or Broadchurch? Yeah. Um, uh, Broadchurch was slightly different from the normal process. I wrote that script on spec uh, mm-hmm. for myself. I'd had a, I had a really horrific experience on a, the show previ- I'd done previously to that, which was Camelot for Stars, mm-hmm. um, which, oh, right. which was a really unpleasant experience. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it, it wasn't. You weren't there, Ben. Um, uh, Still, it, it was, I feel you guilty. Know, no, not at all. It was, it was just a... It, it, there, was, there was a lot of... Uh, a lot of interference and a lot of mm-hmm. you know it's just one of those classic processes that you know nightmares that you hear about and which actually interestingly you know a good a good failure or a good a good screw up is is pretty good for your 
character and career <laughs> if you come through it. Um, so I came out of Camelot feeling uh, that I really wanted to reclaim my territory as a writer and, and, and what I could do. And, and so I wrote Broadchurch on spec for myself. I storylined it with um, my colleague Sam Hoyle, who's a brilliant script executive, and she's head of development at the, the small company I have. And, and um, we just did that in my back garden in in, wow. in England. And I live a mile from that beach in Broadchurch, and that's where that's oh, my town. Um, and um, I walked along there, and I knew, I'd always wanted to do a big ensemble show. I'd all, I, I really love a murder mystery. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's Twin Peaks and Murder One are the two big influences on Broadchurch. Mm-hmm. And, and they'd sort of lived in me. They're in my writer DNA. I'm like, oh, I'd love yeah. to do that. And then I was I, the, the, the beach and the cliffs is where I, write, where I walk when I've got writing problems. You know, mm-hmm. I had a writing tutor who used to say, take, a, take your problems out for a walk. It's, you know? it's really the best advice. <laughs> yeah, because you, by, after about half an hour, you're not really thinking about them, but your brain, your subconscious is yeah. working them. And by the time you get back, you're like... That doesn't seem to be a problem anymore, <laughs> or, or I've got the solution, or there's another way around. So, um, e- e- yeah, so it kind of came out of that. I needed, I wanted to do something more personal to me, mm-hmm. a passion project for me. So I wrote the first uh, script, uh, and we storylined the series. We got a lot of whiteboards out, and we got all the characters up, and mm-hmm. we did all that. And um, then we, um, I went out and took photos of the locations as well. Wow. Put them into a little iTunes slideshow, uh-huh. you know, <laughs> make it feeling very sophisticated. <laughs> thinking, I can do this, and I actually put the um, the first track of the Social Network soundtrack, the Trent Reznor, yep. really brilliant. That very first um, uh, opening track over the titles, I put that over a two minute slideshow of uh, photos of the landscape and took it into ITV oh, and wow. just went uh, and sort of sold it on that thing of I tried to build up mystery and said oh, I've got a show nobody knows about it and no, nobody knows about it I just haven't <laughs> right. told anyone but I was like I'm coming to you first um, and I'd known them well and I said I, you know it's a big risk though because it's eight well it was ten parts we pitched hmm. um, and uh uh, it's all one story, which they don't normally do. That was more episodic on that network. Hmm. Um, but, you know, it could work. And I had a big pitch ready. And the, the head of the network then, head of drama, Laura Mackey, said, uh, no, no, I think our audience could be ready for one of those. And I was like, oh, oh, I had a big two-minute <laughs> speech prepared. But uh, So she read it very quickly and came back, like, after a weekend and just went, yeah, I think we should move forward with this. So, um, But it, it absolutely came back to... I needed to write something for myself. Mm-hmm. And um, so it's a very strange experience then. It was always a very small show. And to me, it was like, it's my small personal show yeah. that, that maybe we'll put on an re- obscure cable channel in the UK. Um, and uh, and we'll just feel very pleased we did it and nobody will take any notice of it. And then cut to Tuesday night this week and I'm at the LA County <laughs> Museum of Art and there's a red carpet and there's Michael Peña and Anna Gunn and David Tennant and Jackie Weaver and I'm like I really don't understand what happened with this show <laughs> I, I, and I genuinely don't I don't understand what happened in the UK the fact we got to come over and remake it and mm-hmm. that whole process which has been really unusual uh it's it's all a complete mystery to me then you know <laughs> Well I think people do respond to that passion behind it. Yeah. I mean, and that want to tell that story. It's clearly not something that was phoned in, and that's that's what people are finding. In it. I, I mean, I hope so. It's very nice of you to say. I think it's uh, uh, I, I, yeah, I guess that, I guess that's <laughs> right. I think it's the, the lesson is you just have to write everything personal to you, which seems so obvious, it frankly. It does, but it's, it's the, hard to do. Yeah, it is. It is, and it's hard to find the space within, you know, you have to have a career, you have to earn money, yeah. you have to look after your family and pay the mortgage, and um, but actually, I guess what it's taught me is you do that by writing the personal stuff. Yeah. I mean, have you been able to do that over your career? You've worked on a number of different kinds of yeah. shows. Yeah, very deliberately, uh, and actually. And different media, too. I mean, you yeah. started as a playwright. I did, right? yes. Yeah, I started in a very... Um, I did a drama degree at university and then was, you know, did all kinds of odd jobs um, during my 20s and um, uh, was writing in the evenings, and I was very lucky. I, I got uh, there was a fringe theatre, which is in London. It's a, a room above a pub, basically. Yeah. And uh, there was a guy called Martin Richards who ran that and put a little advert in Time Out in London, which just said "Plays Wanted." I kind of can't imagine that happening now. It sort of feels, <laughs> even as I say it, I think I must be lying. It feels <laughs> apocryphal. Um, and and I actually lived around the corner from this venue as well. So it was, uh, uh, and I sent him in a play I'd been working on in the evenings. Um, and he, uh, uh, we met, and he sort of weighed my 
play in his hand and he said, every other play I've been sent has got 96-year-old men, wizards and forests in. And your play has three guys in their 20s and it's set in a room. And he said, we can do your play, <laughs> yeah. so why not, we're going to just put it on. You know? Well, this was actually, I was going to ask this, what was the subject matter that you were interested in then? You know, was it the stuff we all kind of write in our Yeah, 20s? it was three guys, they go away for the weekend, it's a reunion, it's like a college reunion, they do it every year, they go and get drunk. You know, it's a really, it was a very archetypal play to write. Mm-hmm. I guess I was kind of, you know, 28, 29 post-university okay. you know, rationalising all those friendships, which would, some of which carried on, some of which didn't, mm-hmm. you know um, so yeah, it was a pretty it was a pretty male play it was a pretty, uh, but it was I think it was it was funny and it was a bit raucous mm-hmm. um, uh, but the weird thing about that theatre was it was, it was in, in a relatively genteel area of London, southwest London, and you'd have these very well-to-do people, very well-to-do ladies in their 50s would come to this theatre and it would oh sell gosh. out every night. And um, I'd be sitting in the corner and you're, you're watching this play about these guys swearing and drinking in their, <laughs> in their late 20s and you seem to be enjoying it. But, you know, but, but and then actually what Martin said was, well, you will just call you our writer-in-residence. And uh, he's amazing. He's responsible for my entire career. I owe it. I owe him everything. And he said, well, we can't pay anything, but whatever you write, we'll just put it on for the next year. Which is an unbelievable experience. Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah. that's a huge learning curve to uh, yeah. write for an audience, to write yeah. for actors, yeah. to be on some kind of a schedule. Yes, absolutely. It's all about the craft. Mm-hmm. And um, I would sit in, so I wrote three plays and two short plays and we had short play festivals and worked with other writers. And, and, and I would just sit in that room pretty much for every performance of something I'd written. So they would, the runs would be like three weeks. Mm-hmm. And I would be in there every night watching that audience so you know when a joke lands you know when it doesn't you know when a character is um punching through you know when a storyline just hasn't been told clearly it's Mm -hmm. it's unforgiving in the nicest possible way and you know if a joke doesn't land three times in a row it's not them (laughs) you know it's you it's this Uh, audience and and this audience (laughs) yeah exactly what's the matter with people around here um uh yeah so it was a very uh it was a great thing and i learned so much and and um and I got an agent off that as well by the sort of mm-hmm. uh, 18 months it sort of stretched out and um, uh, probably about 18 months later I got an agent who started to get me TV work and but that's where it all started and I, I really everything comes from there and I really like I say what you need is you need um, you need someone to believe in you at some point every writer does you need a bit of luck you need to have worked so <laughs> that when your luck comes in you go I've got five scripts yes, you know or I've got absolutely. this stuff and you need uh, you, you, yeah, you see, you need a mentor, you need patronage, or you, you need somebody just to go. Well, let's just give it a go, and it's all right if we <laughs> screw up. Yeah, you know. Yeah, having that that safe space to to learn the craft. Yeah, and I sure. think I think what you have to do is kind of take that through your career. Or that's yeah. uh, not a universal truth for me. Mm-hmm. What I've tried to do is go. You know what? It's okay to get it wrong. You know, which which yeah. in the days of internet criticism and you know, <laughs> it, it, sometimes you you know, you just you just have to shake all that off and ignore all that because you yeah. just go, uh, we're all just trying. Yeah. And, <laughs> well, where will we be if we couldn't try? That? Yeah, exactly. So it's it's really just that that you have to go through your career as one long experiment and think some things will hit and some things don't. Mm-hmm. It's not like we did stuff on Broadchurch that was different to every other show I've ever worked on. For some reason that hit, you mm-hmm. know, and so... what? But it look- does feel like the, pardon me for interrupting, no. but it does feel to me like the, the trying aspect of Broadchurch was <laughs> making something personal to you, yes. making something a little bit, not, not smaller necessarily, because it's quite a big show. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think that's true, and I think the approach was just, it was quite a simple approach, which was just like, what would it feel like to live through this story? And, mm-hmm. a, and in a lot of Broadchurch, you know, there are a number of influences that you gather through the through your career and one of mine was was working with russell t davis Mm -hmm. um on doctor who and and torchwood primarily torchwood um and he had a great phrase it was a note early on that that he i can't remember whether it was to me or another writer but i was in the room and he just said i just want to know what everyone in this room thinks in this Hmm. scene and and it again it sounds really simple it's like you can apply that through everything you ever do if there are characters in a scene Whoever's in that room, whoever's mm-hmm. in that space you created, what do they all think? What are they all thinking? Because they've all got a different point of view. And in a way, you can trace that line right through to Broadchurch, mm. where, it's, uh, yeah. where it's very much like everybody connected, everybody influenced by that death uh, is, is drawn into the show and is part of the show. And um, 
Uh, and, and in a way, that's how I started out. The very first thing I did on Broadchurch was I got a big whiteboard and, and put in the middle, you know, Danny, and then just drew out everybody who he would ever come into contact with or who would be affected by his death. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the unfolding of the mystery and the yeah. planning of the mystery, because yeah. that, to me, is just the most difficult part. I, I love doing it. It's an yeah. interesting puzzle. Yeah. But it's also... It's hard. It's, re- it's really hard, yeah. Yeah, it's a job. Um, uh, yeah, you have to work really hard at that, and I think it's interesting. I think there's probably more tradition of craft and structure here than there is in Britain, which is hmm. slightly more a, a voice-driven culture and a bit more... I think because a lot of our writers, including myself, come through theatre, where you're, you, it's, it's a little looser in terms of formal structure and um, a little less... Uh, the British writing culture is less industrial. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, I uh, had actually been over and, and, and done some work and some research with a couple of American writers, Rockney O'Bannon, who I'm sure you, you know, who's a, a sure, great guy, yeah. um, who did uh, Farscape and Sequest DSV yeah. and has been on Revolution recently. I think he's on Constantine now. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, he's a, he's a great guy, and he really... Um, really knows his stuff and then a, a colleague of his uh, Richard Manning mm-hmm. um, who was also on Farscape who uh, and we'd done a, lot, a bit of work together and they taught me about four act structures whiteboards beating out a story <laughs> um, and I, I kind of took that back and that really informs Broadchurch we did everything so you break Ricky had a, a great phrase I don't know where he got it from which is you, you can't eat the elephant in one bite and, <laughs> yes. and, and it's really that's exactly it so you break the series down into episodes you break the episodes down into acts you break mm-hmm. the acts down into beats and you just start there and and so that's how we did it really and and i think i hope there's a cheekiness to Broadchurch as well for all that it's personal and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. it's still the product of a childhood watching doctor who where you go okay we need cliffhangers here we need to <laughs> be going out on you know each act break needs to be a big kind of oh moment whether that's emotionally or narratively mm-hmm. um and then the end of the episode needs to be a big cliffhanger either mm-hmm. a big plot twist or a moment on a character you love where you're going oh my god what's going to happen to them it's interesting to me that you planned it as 10 episodes yeah i think we actually being... planned it as 13 actually I mean, and I then went to the network with 10 and they went you can have eight um, so there's this compression that yeah, takes place too yeah. after you're carefully laid out yeah. cliffhangers and and act breaks and things yeah it's it's funny it's because it's a in some ways it's a very measured show and in mm-hmm. some ways it's a very fast show yeah and and in a way it kind of moves between the two and i hope that's sort of the unique rhythm and it's certainly something we talked about a lot when we came to make Grace Point, is in the editing, in the mm. cutting, as well as in the writing, you're, you're constantly on this shifting wave of change of pace, that you're, you're quite languorous, you can hold on the emotion, you can hold on the rooms, and then you're suddenly like, bang, 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 here's a load of plot twists, here's a bit of procedure. Mm-hmm. There's very little procedure, really, in the show. Um, it all happens sort of off screen. Which uh, is kind of what certainly I responded to. Yeah. I mean, well, it's when these mystery stories become personal stories yeah. and, and the procedural elements are the, the, the backdrop. Yeah, I mean, I figured I'd, I'd done Law & Order UK and, and right. so we brought that over to... So I was the yeah. launch showrunner on that. So yeah. I worked with Dick Wolf quite closely on bringing that over to the UK. And I, again, I learned a lot from him and... and 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 very much Law and Order is just a Swiss watch, and it's the same Swiss watch every week. So he has it's a like, very specific way he, yeah, he likes he things done. Yeah, and he I've said to me at one point, and actually Broadchurch almost comes from this. He, he said to me, uh, "Okay, if you because we did adaptations of the U.S. stories. Right. So the interesting thing is, I've been through the process both ways That's now. So bizarre. It's very yeah, it's completely <laughs> accidental. And um, he said, uh, so I watched. I don't know to do Law and Order UK to get that first season of thirteen stories that I wanted to adapt. I must have watched hundred and fifty. <laughs> Law and Orders. Oh, you could take those apart like yeah. that. And he amazing. said to me, be careful. When you're watching seasons one to three, that there's a, there's a scene that's missing from every episode. And it's the same scene. It may have been just the first season or the mm-hmm. second season. But, um, uh, and he said, it's the scene. And we realized it for you know, later on. And, it, which, and he said, it's the scene where the grieving relative comes into the morgue and stands at the kind of glass panel next to the detectives and goes, that was my husband, that was my daughter, it was my cousin, he was great at baseball, he was really good in school, he was just about to go and be an astronaut, you know, this is... And and please, you have to find... I loved him so much, you have right. to find the person who did this. So it's like, the, he said, it's the emotional connection back to the audience, mm-hmm. which then you understand then when the detectives are so bothered about it and they, you send them off into the world. 
And I thought, wow, that shows how much of a Swiss watch it is, because <laughs> they knew there was one little cog, yeah. which it was just jarring slightly. And then when they, he said when they got them and that cog went in, that was the complete holistic law and order. It really connected and flew then. It's funny, that must have been such a lightning bolt for him. Yeah. Because I talked to some writers recently who worked on SVU, right. who said that they were told by Dick Wolf. Who do we care about? Yeah. Like every story, we have to know who we care about, and it can't be the corpse. Yeah, and it's it's that scene. That's yeah, really yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, it really is. I mean, it's a great for anything for any story you're ever writing. It's a really great question. Absolutely. You know, some of those questions which are really annoying but are fundamental. You know, who do we care about? Why is this happening now? What does it mean? You know, okay, <laughs> what are the stakes? Um, but they, but these things well, matter. Well, but it's I mean, um, their is... truisms because they do matter, yeah. 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 But actually then, so uh, I wrote quite a lot of those first season UK episodes, adapted them, um, which was no sure because they were so well structured in the in the US iteration. And, uh, and I was the showrunner, so I overwrote a few. And so I wrote a lot of versions of that scene. And, and actually, it's why I didn't stay on past the first season because I, like, I was like, I've really done this now. I, I, yeah. I really understand how this works and... I, I'm not sure I want to do it another sure. 29 times. Um, and the, uh, uh, but actually, when I kept writing that scene and I kept thinking, I don't want to go with the detectives now. I want to go with that person. Mm. I want to go with the grieving. What happens to them when they walk out of that scene? Where's their life? And, and in a way, that's another little thing that, that went into Broadchurch is mm. like, what happens to them the day after? What happens to them the day after that? And really, that's that family. That's the Latimer family comes out. I don't think I'd have had that thought without doing Law and Order UK. Hmm. But someone else might approach that, and it might be an incredibly maudlin uh, series where Broadchurch yeah. certainly isn't. Well, I, I think, I mean, a lot of that's down to the actors, to be honest. Hmm. It is, is so much of it is down to their understanding of where to pitch grief. Um, but also, we talked a lot about hope. Mm-hmm. We talked a lot about warmth. I think the one thing, the one thing you have to work quite hard at, and, and and you can see a lot of shows don't quite get there is 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 warmth and humanity, and it's yeah. it's it's not cool. <laughs> you know, you can talk about shows that are, that are, that are cool, and you know, and, and actually those are the ones that often don't connect with the audience because they're not going. She no, but if it was you, what mm-hmm. would it feel like? And that was the continual thought in Broadchurch, and continues to be as we move on. If it was you. What would it feel like? What would you do? How would you behave? Yeah. Uh, that's the kind of uh, question I just kept asking in every scene. But also to go, life is mixed, and in the heart of terrible events, you have humour or ridiculousness yeah. or uh, hope. Or um, so it was that cocktail of tones. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I, we started talking about these, telling these personal stories in all different kinds of shows. Um, let's talk about Torchwood for yeah. a moment. I yeah. know this audience wants to hear about it. Oh, I love to talk about Torchwood. <laughs> oh, I could talk about it forever. Um, you had done previous to that just one Doctor Who with... No, uh, I'd done that. I, actually, I did Doctor Who after the first season of oh, Torchwood. No yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. How, how did you even get involved? And what is the TV writer community like in oh, the UK? Is that's there an interesting community? question. There kind of is. Yeah, we all sort of know each other a little bit and we're all... We all get on uh, pretty well, I, th- I think. It's it's not uh, it's not like here where there's huge networking and stuff like that. There's, mm-hmm. there's the um, uh, yeah, very, I'd struggle to define what it's like. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of very talented people there. There's a lot of very generous people, um, and and often you find a lot of people like the same things. And so um, certainly, I've made some really good friends from working on uh Torchwood and Doctor Who and mm-hmm. and those shows and actually you, you come back to those people and you you know both producers and directors as well um so yeah i don't know what the community is <laughs> like yeah yeah it's i mean it's small you know it's right. a, there's a there's a there's a small pool and i think if you're there's a really great opportunity if you're british and want to be a writer because there's there's not enough writers you know and mm-hmm. not not enough writers who kind of keep going and push through all the time because it's that's the thing really you got to persistence is is really a huge component here yeah well and i think that's true in the u.s as well Mm. it's it's you know you have to want to do it badly enough that you stick with it through the terrible parts of it yeah because there are it's like any job it's not like a it's not all sunshine and rainbows (laughs) and sweets it's you know candies i should say um it it really uh some days it's really tough you know Mm -hmm. and it's like you know we did the first season of torchwood which was a really i mean it was a really tough season to do for all sorts of reasons i'm really happy to talk about um 
And then they said, do you want to do a Doctor Who? And it's like, I've been a Doctor Who fan since... Like, my first memory of anything is Doctor Who. Oh my like, in my life is like, a, you know, a, the sea devils coming out of the sea in a John Pertwee episode. <laughs> is like, I, which must have been... I must have been, like, three. Yeah, seriously. And I, that's probably... I don't think I have an earlier memory than that. That's um, So, uh, and then they go, do you want to write one? By the way... It's shooting in five weeks. <laughs> and you're like, uh, do I want to do it? Can I do it in five weeks? And I've never done it before wow. and I'm exhausted. So it's like you, you, there's no optimum. What you never get, I find, is you never, you, you never really get that champagne moment where right. you go, it's all fantastic. You've got the offer you like. You've got exactly the right amount of time. You've got exactly the right amount of budget, you know. Um, it was, it's, it's all that kind of stuff. That's Sorry, I'm jumping about. No, not but, at all. Um, yeah. this, this is what we do. Um, but but let, tell me about getting involved in Torchwood yes. in the first place. How, how did you become the guy to be the head writer and to run this show? <laughs> it's a really good question. I'm not entirely sure, actually. You should ask Julie Gardner. I had dinner with her last night, actually, and she's because she's over here now in L.A. Is she, she full Yeah, she's here at uh, BBC Worldwide here oh, okay. in, in, in L.A. Good. Uh, we'll get her in here. You should get her in here. Yeah, she'll tell you everything. <laughs> well, um, she, I mean, the Russell T. Davis book, uh, the Writer's Tale book, is yes. so instructive to me about the nuts and bolts about of yeah. making a television show. It's a it's a great book, and it's uh, the co- and she comes alive in it. I yeah. love her as a character in it. She is, and she's like that in real life, only yes. only more so. And you know, <laughs> actually, that book is a very good evocation of the spirit around those shows at hmm. that time, in terms of both the chaos and the toughness and the madness and the joy as well. It yeah. was an incredibly, it was a crazy time to be working on those things, but it was really great, and there was a real sense of pioneering and adventure and, and again the give it a go give it a go we might fail it's okay yeah um, and, and you felt it like that came across on the screen and yeah. it was exciting to watch yeah I mean it's like it, it's this thing of there's no right answer there's only your your best attempt and it's like it's okay to do something that's a bit odd I'd rather be you'd rather be doing something that's a bit odd and fails but then it's just sort of you know really generic by the numbers and empty for sure you know sure. um but uh, so what were you coming off of I was coming off so I had my own show on BBC One which is a very which was the first show the first one hour drama script I'd ever written and mm-hmm. it got green lit into a series and it ran four years and it was this sort of we have a Sunday night slot in the UK, which is 8 o'clock, which now Call the Midwife is in. Mm-hmm. So it's that kind of a show. And this one was set in the 1950s. It was set around a, a, a little village hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds it was, so... I, I'm surprised I haven't seen it. Uh, it sounds so up my alley, but it was kind of a light drama. Yeah, right? yeah. It's sort of comedy drama, but it, and quite family-friendly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's it's it was very... Yeah, light drama is, is exactly that. Uh, big ensemble, is, small is, town. It's really weird. It's like the, it's like the, the negative or the bizarro world of Broadchurch, you know? Yeah. Uh, but this was the first hour script you had written for television? Yeah, and then when I sat down to write episode two, I was like, what the hell happens in episode two? I've only done plays. I have no idea. <laughs> right. Uh, that was the most terrifying moment of my career, I think. I was like, oh, my God. And then in the end, I wrote, I don't know, I think I wrote, I can't remember the number. It's probably about 17, 20. And then I overwrote others and I became a, uh, gradually became a, a, a co-producer and executive producer mm-hmm. and, and learned that side of the craft mm-hmm. as well. I had very brilliant executive producers, uh, Sue Hogg and Simon Lewis, who, who said, if you want to be part of this, if you want to come into the edit, mm. if you want to be involved in casting... It was really uh, terrific, uh, and I'd done a bit of that. I would, you know, in my jobs while I was not writing full time, I'd been administrator in theatre companies and mm-hmm. worked for Sky Sports in their soccer oh, yeah. VT library. I erased tapes for six weeks one in my first oh, job my after God. university. <laughs> literally, this, but you know, like the airport scanners where your luggage mm-hmm. goes in. So I would put. Uh, beta cam tapes in one side and they would they would go through they would be erased and they would come out the other side and then they would go back out again right. it was my job that's a yeah. terrible job it's, it was a really <laughs> terrible job <laughs> you did get to watch TV all day sure you know but it was really well, look, look you're, actually, you're working like, in the industry I was but that was it I was like I am working in TV That's you know uh, straight out of university right. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah yeah um, so I did this show called Born and Bred and mm-hmm. then after that that ran for four seasons. Um, and after that, I was very conscious, and I, I think it's probably something I've kept trying to do, is um, I was very conscious of not wanting to do the same show again. So mm-hmm. you get pitched versions of your own show back at you. 
right at the moment, I you know, people send me stuff and I'm like, and on the third page it goes, and so-and-so meets Broadchurch. I'm like, oh, really? Take that line out of the pitch when you send it to me. You know, you don't, you don't need to do that. Um, I'm the guy who's going to notice that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and so I had done... Uh, two episodes of a show called Life on Mars oh, right. uh, which Matthew Graham and Tony Jordan yeah. and Ashley Farrow created um, and which I loved doing. It was the first time I worked with Kudos then, when they produced that show mm-hmm. and um, Jane Featherstone who it was an executive producer mm. on that and that was great because that was a crazy show. It was a cop show but it was also a time yeah, travel show sort show. of, a period show and it had these two great characters and great actors at the centre yeah. great double act. So I'd done one episode in each season of that, and mm-hmm. Julie Gardner was an executive producer on that. Oh, okay. she was the BBC executive on that mm-hmm. show, and I ju- and she must have known I was a Doctor Who fan, or, or I, I don't know. I, I, it, the show was going out at the time. I think the first season was going out when we were making the first season of Life on Mars, mm-hmm. and we'd had conversations about how great it was, and she just rang and said, "Can you?" Can you? She did the classic. It's a classic Julie Gardner movie. She's like, "Can you meet me in the corner of this private members club in London? I have a glint in my eye, and I need to talk to you about it." I was like, "Oh, all right then." Um, and I did. And she, we sat down, and she just went, "We're going to do a post watershed, so post nine pm, mm-hmm. spin off of Doctor Who with Captain Jack as the lead character." Are you interested? <laughs> what <laughs> you know? Because there's never been a proper spin-off of Doctor Who. Yeah. Really, there's been one, um, uh, but but this is a single episode. But yeah, it was just like so. Okay, we're in we're in frontier country here, and that's, that's so interesting. Yeah, and how, mu- was, how much more was there? Any more formed there was, to there that? Was a page. There was a page of A4 uh, paper uh, which Russell had, and then it was called. It was under the code word Excalibur. Team mm-hmm. called Excalibur at that point, and um, he just said, "This is this is what it is." And actually, that page got it green lit. The writers all came on board. Russell was still writing that pilot script, and I think I think my memory is, I can't remember which year this is. Maybe it's two thousand and four going into two thousand and five, maybe or five into no five into six. Mm-hmm. That he delivered the full first draft in probably like the first few days of January two thousand and six. And so we hadn't read anything. I think we'd read for half the first episode because he was still writing Doctor <laughs> Who. He's doing the second season of Doctor Who yeah. while writing this. And then we were on air with 13 episodes on the 22nd of October that year, I think. Wow. So you, when did it, production start? I feel like it was March or April. It might, right, maybe yeah. got pushed back a little bit, so it may have been May. Um, but it was like when I say it was crazy, it was crazy because you didn't know what the show was right. until you saw that first episode. And actually, even in that first episode, that's not a format pilot. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a, it's not a premise pilot. It's, it's, it's almost like a here are the characters. This is the world. You know, yeah. the resolution to that first episode is not a is not a resolution you're going to play in any other episode. That's right. you, uh, you know, not to spoil it for people who haven't seen it, yeah. but. Um, I don't know when the spoiler. Everybody's seen it. Okay, all right. So that's it's a, you been know, ten years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and everybody else has done that trick now. Um, <laughs> yeah, true. so it's one of the team is the murderer at the right. end and gets killed at the end of the thing. So you, you're like, oh, okay. So the team that you've set up and one of the great characters is gone. Right. And actually, what is this week on week? And yeah. I don't think it's unfair to say that first season is us going, uh, what is this show in a in a really exciting way, you know? And yeah. and what Russell was fantastic at going is try everything let's try every genre let's really have fun with this because and we were also on bbc3 which was a kind of which is a much more niche channel a a digital channel with a particular remit it's like we've got to be bold on this Hmm. and that means you know sometimes we may not achieve what we want to achieve but sometimes we will you know yeah that's really interesting uh, and so there was that spirit of adventure slash panic (laughs) slash terror (laughs) slash fun um and I, really, Julian Russell's energy and positivity, mm-hmm. uh, like, let's just do it, and, you know, uh, got us through, I think. But it, it's, uh, you, you know, it's an uneven first season in, in, in so many ways, but, but equally, I'm not sure there's any other show quite like it, you know, and, and I love it for that. I, yeah. I love it for its imperfections, and, and everybody who worked on it was very aware of those imperfections, but also you're thinking... I think there have been a lot of shows since which have tried to copy it mm-hmm. and model themselves on it, but but actually once you start applying real care and logic to that, it kind of falls apart. Yeah. You know, it's, it gets by on brio, particularly <laughs> in the first season. You know, I think the second season is a is a bit more. We had a moment to draw breath and go, what worked, what didn't work, and actually 
when I say we had a moment to draw breath, I think we had a week, you know, and then we just went straight on. Um, well, and it feels like it had that thing, which I remember reading in Davis's book, that really was eye-opening to me about so many of the Doctor Who episodes that he wrote, and really about everything that he's written, yeah. which was logic isn't, story logic isn't uh, the most important thing. Emotional yeah. fulfillment yeah. is. And yeah. you can sell this last act if it's emotionally satisfying. Yes, and you can explain everything in a line. You know, Absolutely. you re- in, in particularly in genre, but actually in a lot of shows, and and also it's like life isn't logical. Yeah, you know, I've done a couple of uh, real life dramas. I've done The Great Train Robbie in a film called mm-hmm. United, which is about soccer, uh, sporting tragedy, and um, uh, there's stuff in those movies where you would go if you were just storylining them for real you go that's never going to happen that's just ludicrous you know the guy the start of the great train robbery is the they do a a, a sort of pre-heist on another place and Mm -hmm. they dressed up in bowler hats and sticky moustaches and umbrellas all identical went in and robbed this place absolutely happened in 1962 Mm. you you put it on screen you're like that's a little heightened (laughs) that's everybody's gonna you know the receptionist didn't go they're identical you know (laughs) um so that uh that really yeah, it, it's. I think what Russell uh, loves is 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 he's. You, you know, how does it make you feel? Where does it mm-hmm. take you? What does it tell you about life? You know, you, you, and that's not to say he disregards logic because he's yeah. he's relentlessly thorough and ruthless. But sometimes he's the one to go rightly. This is more important. Yeah. You know, it's like you know, uh, you know. Let, let's not worry about where those people went after this finished, but actually, how are they now feeling? Mm-hmm. Because you can't do everything, you know, and you can't right. do everything in 45 minutes. Absolutely. Um, so actually, what are you most interested in? Are you most interested in ruthless logic, which actually, the scene, you know, the scene where everything gets explained is always the scene you cut. The oh, scene where absolutely. the Doctor and Rose have chips is the scene you keep in. Yes. Uh, and because you, you love characters. And I know, you know, I know that drives some people crazy, but also it's like, it's a really, it's why you love characters, why that, that version of Doctor Who was such a mainstream hit because yeah. people cared. Absolutely. And, and it was all of these things coming together. Yeah. Not just the writing, but the direction and the, Absolutely. And the actor, and the, the right actors. Yeah, yeah. And also great uh, effects and post-production and design. Oh, for you know, sure. Ed Thomas, who designed it. That yeah. which, you know, actually stuff that hadn't been seen in the UK then. Really? Yeah, oh, yeah, really. You know, the yeah. production values just got yeah, higher and true. higher. And, you know, it, yeah. it took them a little while to get you know absolutely to where they wanted to be but not that long really and no. and you know it's it, it's extraordinary but yes i think he's i mean russell is a, a stone cold 100 percent genius he's absolutely you, you you know and genuinely i say that and i've worked with a couple in my career mm-hmm. and and he is and um he but equally you look at that and the the concepts that went through that show the metaphor that went through that show mm-hmm. it's a really ambitious very show, you know, yes. tonally, narratively, emotionally, cheek by jowl, all these different things. It was the landscape of it was enormous. Yes. You know? Well, and I think I feel like, and I kind of want to get back to the discovery process on Torchwood yes. for you and the writers. Um, you've had now a season or two seasons of Doctor Who, right before Torchwood. Started there up? was uh, a one season, and, and okay. the, we were reading the scripts for the second season because okay. Torchwood was embedded into the running arc of Doctor Who oh, during the second right. season. Okay. So I was reading those scripts. So, so you're seeing the ambition, the ambitious sort of shows they've done already, yeah, and you've yeah. seen that kind of the warmth of the characters that yes. people are responding to. Yeah. Um, how did you and how many writers were there on that? I can't remember. I can't remember. I feel like it was six or seven that okay. first season. So a pretty decent sized yeah, room. Yeah, like that's a real manageable. Number yeah, although we didn't run a room, so it was just like well, we, was we had a meeting. <laughs> you know, okay. that, that was really it. So how did I mean? You guys were figuring out the show as you went, but yeah. well, what did that look like? And how did you find the show that you were interested in? In this huge, you know, template that had been established, I think um, uh, the the first season, my memory of it, and this may not be correct, but I think Russell did a document of very sort of vague possibilities and stories and things like that. I don't think it was the whole season, though. Mm-hmm. I think it was a few stories, and maybe okay. it was even the first first half or I actually can't remember my memory's going to be faulty on that mm-hmm. um, certainly there were a number of stories and some of those were, were dished out to writers um, uh, and then we all went away and started to write episodes and um, I, it, the, the thing of finding the show you're interested in it's like that is a luxury you don't get when you're working <laughs> at that speed sure. you're, you're not actually thinking 
what am I interested in? You're thinking, how can I deliver this? How, who are these mm. characters? How do I fit them into this story? How do we then make it? Because it wasn't a Doctor Who budget by any stretch mm. of the imagination. It was much less. Um, uh, so it was... It, you never had time to think, mm. you, uh, really. Uh, and, and actually, the stories we did were so uh, varied in tone and content and concept. Um, we just ran. You know, I, I can't put it any better than that. Yeah, and there was no, an energy and an adrenaline to that. And, you know, we made a lot of mistakes, but also we, those characters were so great and uh, that, that Russell had created in his first script, and so you wanted to test them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. I think you, you, you don't sit there thinking about it. I think that's another thing that comes out of Russell's book. It's like you don't sit around <laughs> theorizing, you know. That's what happens elsewhere. That's what happens afterwards. That's right. almost... You know the fans and critics show, but actually, when you're in the room, you're just going, "How long have we got? How many pages do I need to write? What budget do we have? What can't we do? Mm-hmm. Um, and then what can we do?" And mm-hmm. it's it's like it's quite brutal. It's brutally simple. <laughs> it's it, not it really. It's not really. This is the aesthetic we right. need to find within this. It's like okay, you can have. 70% in the studio, you can have 30% on location, uh, and we need it in nine days and, and go, you know. Uh, but you're also, you know, you have this cast of characters that's been yeah. established, and you know you have to use them, and can. this is a somewhat serialized show, so you can sort of yes. put them through their paces. Um, but at the end of the day, you're still... You're writing stories no matter how big or small. Yeah. And I would imagine you have to ask, what's the most interesting choice we can make yeah, for these yeah. characters? Yeah, you're always... I mean, I think, you know, that I did the second episode and that was very much about uh, Gwen, the Eve Mars character. That mm-hmm. was about her first day at work and it's like, how crazy can her first day at work be? Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, a meteorite lands and then a, a sex-obsessed alien gas lands and inhabits human beings. You know, that's <laughs> it's pretty... That. Yeah, yeah. That's a crazy <laughs> one, that one. I don't know. Um, uh but that, yeah, so you're doing that, and then I think the you know Helen Rayner did the the third episode, and and that was about a, a machine about memories, and that more affected the Owen character. Mm-hmm. Then episode four was the Cyberwoman episode, which was about Yanto the butler who mm-hmm. had his half cybernized girlfriend in the basement, and that had to be all in studio. Mm-hmm. And I was having to write that, and my first child was being born. I literally went oh like God. no second child, sorry, my youngest child. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and actually, I, li- I remember writing that. I, I wrote that. It's like my wife gave birth upstairs, and we had a home birth. She gave birth uh, upstairs in the house. It was like three hours later, I was typing. I was like, okay, we've got to do this. We're still going. You know, it was like, that's also the Russell and Julie Gardner thing. It's like, congratulations on your baby. When are you delivering? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, uh, so, uh, yeah, yeah. So That's madness. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, so everything. And then six was an episode called Countryside, and it's like them all going out of town into mm-hmm. the, you know, and there's no monster in that, really. It's just a sort of they're all going on a way day. Yeah, I like that one. It's one of my favorites of that season, yeah. for, of the ones I did, because um, that, that one felt to me, oh, we got closest to finding something there, mm-hmm. you know. Um, well, there's a, there's a lot of fun, and I feel like, again, this is something you got to do with Broadchurch because the genre trappings are not quite as hard as they are on, on Torchwood. Uh, yeah, that's true. Like yeah, that, yeah, yeah. You get to live with the characters and yeah. really explore how they interact and, and what makes them tick. Yeah, I mean, it's also the difference between episodic and serialized. And I think, yeah. you know, Torchwood probably found its greatest iteration when it serialized and mm. when it went into Children of Earth. It, it really found its feet, I think, and it really, that, that's when it becomes a really, the metaphors are clearer, you get to spend time with the mm-hmm. character. I think there's something about serialized television which is much richer and more rewarding. When you're doing a whole story in 45 minutes, new guest characters, new concept, yeah. new, it's really hard. And then, let alone, you've got to have, because we're all writing concurrently during that first season That's of right. Torchwood, then you've got to align the episodes. So there is a tonal jarring, I think, a little bit in that first season hmm. because you're... You know, we hadn't seen each other's scripts, and and so it, it really sort of went through. And I think there's certain moments where the show blossoms in that first season, then sometimes mm-hmm. it de-blossoms and then starts to get. You know, so it's a uh, it's it's very interesting. But I think what gets you through is those great actors, those great characters, mm-hmm. um, and and just a sense of you know, there's not really a show like it. Yeah, I mean, it, it felt like you like you say you got to try things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting when the show goes out. You don't really. It was a huge hit on BBC Three in the UK, but you can you could sense the sort of Doctor Who fans are going, there's a Doctor Who spin-off coming, and then you go, yeah, yeah but that's not, that doesn't mean it's Doctor Who, that means it's an entirely new, <laughs> it's a branding exercise, yeah. you know, nothing more, and actually you could sense them going, it's going to be like that, and then it comes out and it's not like that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because like the first episode 
of tortured is more like prime suspect than mm -hmm. it is Doctor Who. Um, and so you could feel people go, I don't understand. How, where does this fit? And, you know, uh, so. Well, that's, yeah, that's an interesting balance that, I mean, I guess it has to be familiar or comforting or something to those fans who of the original show. But it has to be its own thing. Uh, yeah, I don't, we never talked about that, yeah. actually. I, I don't think any of them. No, but nobody ever talked. And, and the thing about Russell as well is he's bloody-minded. You know, he doesn't, he doesn't care. He wants a great show. Yeah. And actually, he's not going, we have to serve the fans. He's going, we have to create an audience. It's a very different thing, actually. And particularly in the UK where you've got to, you know, it's, you need those big audiences. Um, that's the thing. You, you're writing for a mainstream audience because otherwise you don't survive. Yeah, you know? that's, uh, that's an interesting aspect of that of the UK model. Yeah, um, has it? It has to be freeing in a way because you have to swing for the fences every you, time. You really do. Yeah, yeah, you absolutely do. And and that is that is freeing. You need to take, take a deep breath every time. Yeah. Um, uh, but Torture went through that interesting process. It started on BBC Three, then it moved to BBC Two, which has a higher viewership, and then. On season three with Children on Earth, they moved it to BBC One. And, hmm. and so it went through, became a more mainstream show. And it became that because it evolved. But, but also that was, it was always talked about as possibly being that show. Oh, interesting. Uh, and movie, it was never like, this is a niche sci-fi show. It was like, how do you build this into... Right. The sci-fi audience in the UK is never going to sustain a show. Mm -hmm. uh, a main, the mainstream network audience is, and right. that's who you have to appeal to. You know, interesting. I can I, hear people howling across <laughs> the internet, but it's, you know, it's really true. No, absolutely. I, I and this is sort of a, a business question, but uh, now nah, forget. It, I'm going to skip it. Oh, I I'm was interested in what a business about, question was. <laughs> I'll get back to it. Okay. I want to. I want to hit this first because uh, you brought it up. Um, but the the central metaphor of tortured is something yeah. that you say you guys struggled with yeah um which absolutely makes sense to me i mean it's a difficult show and and we talk on these panels a lot about finding the metaphor yeah and you know that's what elevates a story yeah um can you talk can you speak to that at all i mean I, again it seemed very clear on doctor who and so when you come to torchwood you're not only creating a world and characters and and the format for this show but you're f you want to find that that central metaphor, yeah. And I think we we certainly in the first season didn't quite find it mm -hmm. uh, because it, I think each episode has probably got its own metaphor. But I'm mm -hmm. not sure there's a unifying metaphor through that through that first season. Uh, or you, you, but but in a way, like somebody said at one place, he said it, it's it's just like it's a workplace drama. It's just the work it happens to be they have to save the city and the world every episode. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, to be honest, I think once you get into season two, I think you get into things of of regret and family and public and private, you know, and, and Gwen's sort of identity mm -hmm. within within the uh, within the group and and having to keep that secret from her husband. It became much more emotionally driven. Is mm -hmm. how can you how can you have a life and do something extraordinary? You know, that, that relationship between ordinary and extraordinary mm -hmm. was always where Torchwood lived, I think, uh, and it became clearer in the second season. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Um, the, the business question I had was just kind of about, you know, I feel like so much of writing for television in the U.S. is awareness of the industry itself and navigating the industry itself and mm -hmm. actual writing is almost secondary yeah uh, is that the case uh, in the UK no I don't think so I think it's much more the writing is the the writing is the thing and then can you get the writing onto screen you know mm -hmm. can you convince people because I think you know the, there's a lot of commissioners in the UK who are great who just say we don't know what we want we'll know it when you bring it to us you know, don't try and second guess us. You know, and particularly because the BBC is um, is publicly funded, they're looking to be bold. They're looking to do different things. Yeah. Um, but also, ITV. You know, Broadchurch was a huge risk for ITV. Mm -hmm. um, they they really took it on. I mean, it was in the crime genre, which they're comfortable with, but it's not really a crime show. Right. Not, but but not you get to really. sneak it to audiences. You do, and it's it's show. yeah, it's a kind of a Trojan horse show, really. Yeah. Um, but but as the, the is the the serialized aspect that made it risky for them yeah absolutely because if if nobody had come at episode one we would have been screwed yeah you know and and we didn't get a huge audience on episode one i think we got five and a half million or six million on the overnights um and but then it built from there but it could have gone the other way it could have just dropped and dropped you know and we could have been 
pulled at week four and moved to Saturday night at half past 11. You just, you, <laughs> yeah. you, you, you don't know. Everybody says to me now, you must have known with Broadchurch. Like, we had no <laughs> clue. We had no clue. Yeah. Well, I feel like that's, that's always it. I mean, yeah. you can, even here, you can watch the numbers as much as you want to, but ultimately, it's out of your hands. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You hope yeah. people will watch and enjoy yeah, it. Yeah, but all you, all you can do is make a good show. Exactly. You know, or, or make the best show yeah. you can under the circumstances you have. And, and ratings are absolutely out of your out of your control but but equally yeah you're always looking how you're always thinking how is this going to connect to a mainstream audience mm-hmm. the other thing that's really interesting to me about and i've only talked to a couple of uh writers who have worked for uh worked in the uk mm. but is how isolated the writers are yes. from each other and yeah, from, yeah, yeah. from the production sometimes that can be the case it can be the case on particularly the big there's big continuing dramas yeah. with soaps and, and medical dramas I think it's very difficult for writers within that yeah. machine but I guess um, it's even like I talked to um, Ian who wrote the Inbetweeners I oh yeah, I those guys. Like yeah, they're great. Yeah, but is like, it Ian Beasley uh, and Damon? I don't know. Uh, I but he he spoke about just the two of them sitting in a room writing ten episodes. Yeah, and then and then handing it over. Yeah, 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 to production. Yeah, yeah, and you yeah. know they were they're there for the whole time. After yeah, that. but <clears throat> here it feels like because it's a moving train, and you know you're sitting in a room with seven, eight, nine, it's up to twenty yeah. other writers. Yeah, it's um, it feels much more collaborative. Yeah, yeah. Uh, whereas it feels to me like in the UK it's a much more one-to-one collaboration. Yeah, no, I you think that's very true. You directors, you work yeah. with your writers. Yeah, and even on Doctor Who, you know, we, we, we all sort of know each other a little bit, but it's not like it's not like you're all in a room together right. doing that. You know, you go in and you meet Russell or you meet Stephen and you have a quick meeting and he goes, okay, this, you know, and, and then you're off. And, and you know... Yeah. And that's like, really interesting to me. I mean, especially considering the... Moffat era Doctor yeah. Who's yeah. that you've written, which there have been a few, right? I think uh, probably four episodes, three yeah. stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and the the Moffat's Doctor Who's feel very serialized. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so how do you fit what is essentially a freelance writer into that? I think you just, I mean, mine have, uh, I think it's more about the briefs of the individual episodes. Mm-hmm. Um uh, uh, and often what happens is later on in the drafts they go, can you just drop this in? So yeah. like the first two parts that, that I did in Matt Smith's first season, then maybe either at, just before the first draft, Stephen would say, and you need to kill Rory at the end of episode nine. <laughs> you know, uh, oh, okay, right. <laughs> good he needs to fall for a crack in time. Right, okay, good. Uh, and you just do that. And, and they, But you never, he never says, because this is how it's all going right. to play out. You know, it's like, just, like, just do that for me. Right, which uh, kind of doesn't matter. No, you know, no, no. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's Someone fine. who doesn't have to look at the big no. picture. And then other ones I did, you know, the, uh, I did one called Dinosaurs on a Spaceship, which... which um, <laughs> so fun. It's just, you know, that's what Stephen said. He's just I just want the biggest... He said, I want a Michael Bay romp on a BBC budget. Uh, <laughs> wow, okay. Uh, yeah, he was just like, it's got to be the most fun of any episode. It's got to be. It's hilarious, and you know, I loved doing that. Um, do you pitch stories? Are stories pitched to you? How does that work? With, uh, that show? one, he j- he came in. He said, "Coming from eating," and he said, "I've got, I've got, what's that? There's four words." Uh, he said, "I've got four words to say to you: uh, dinosaurs <laughs> on a spaceship." I was like, "No, but how are you going to do that? We can't do that. You can't." I remember I was in a it was a private members' class. I just stared out the window for a minute, and I was like, "Okay, do you think we can do? Okay, have we got the budget?" So then, and then we met the FX guys, and I was like, "Right, okay, tell me what we can do. Tell oh, me how many cool. dinosaurs I can have. Tell me how many sequences. Tell me how many shots." So it's we, so funny, and I'm working on a show now where that that story is dictated by the FX stuff or the, yeah, 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 the animators yeah, and stuff. And yeah. in many ways, it's 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 really helpful. I mean, yeah, it it's obviously very helpful, but it gives you yeah. structure. Yeah, it's, it's actually makes things easier. Yeah, you know what to deploy, and yeah. and, uh, and also you you want to get the most bang for you, but you want it to be as exciting as possible within those parameters. Um, so on that one, but that was all I got, you know, and then I went back and said, I want Rory's dad, I want, you know, a big game hunter, I want these people, I want to bring, you know, I'm going to have this guy called Solomon, and, you know, um, so that was the thing. With the, there was a, the one I did two episodes later called The Power of Three, it was sort of two things, Stephen, it was quite a late commission. He just came back and said, we've got, I think they only expected to have four episodes, then they got five. So Mm -hmm. he rang me up and went, "Uh, I want a big Rory and Amy episode, just all about them. Uh, And then, and he said, and then you figure out the, you know, and I came back and said, okay, there's these cubes and they land and nobody knows what they are. And they sort of, it's an invasion of the earth by little black cubes um, or little white cubes, I think. Uh, And um, it's changed in production. Uh, (laughs) 
so it varies, to be honest. You know, sometimes you have a, oh. a pitcher where you're going and pitch stuff, and he's like, yeah, we've got, we got to go story five episodes later, don't do that, and, you know. Sure. Um, but it is relatively, yeah, there's not much sort of communal writing on it that's at all. But that's Stephen's job, really, in a way, right. as it was Russell's job. They're sort of overseeing, they know, you know, oh, the things to do. Like on my very first Doctor Who episode, Russell was like, at the end, I want, or no, in the middle, I want Martha to phone home, and then we come out and she phones her mum, and you pull back at the end, and there's this woman listening into the phone call. Hmm. Just write that scene in, wherever you like. <laughs> Okay, <laughs> you know, I'm like, oh, I wonder what that is. <laughs> well, <laughs> you still get to be a fan, yeah, which is really neat. You do, although you never write as a fan. I think it's, you I know, so, it, that's a, I think it's a real misconception. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't, you know, I mean, I was a Doctor Who fan, but I was a, a Doctor Who fan for a very, I loved it as a kid. There was mm-hmm. a period like between when I was sort of fifteen and seventeen when I was a really big fan and went to the. Merseyside fan club no and did kidding. conventions and did all that kind of stuff. But then I, you know, but actually what for me it was about, I think in retrospect was I wanted to be in TV drama and it was the show I most loved. So what I loved was mm-hmm. director's interviews, writer's interviews, you know, uh, reading stuff with Robert Holmes and Terence Dix and people like that. Um, and then I went off and did drama and really drama kind of overtook the Doctor mm-hmm. Who-ness of it. So I'm, I'm not sort of an, uh, uh, right. uh, uh, I haven't been a long-term obsessive fan. I had like two or three years when I really was. Right. But um, there is something about getting to play with those toys yeah, it's that you great. loved as a kid. It's, uh, it's really great. And, you know, the great thing is, you know, I'm a dad and I can take my kids on the set and they that's can meet right. Matt Smith or Peter Capaldi or, or David Tennant, you know. That's really cool. Don't underestimate. That's more, to be honest, <laughs> I more do it for my kids than I do it for myself as a fan. I have to be, you know, it, it's because... Your fan, they, it doesn't get you anywhere. Once you've written Interior TARDIS, like, something has to happen in this scene. Yeah. So, you know, and actually, I've got a budget restriction. I've, got, <laughs> I've only got two weeks to write this. It's, uh, it, it doesn't it's still get the you job. It, it really is, and you can, the fan thing can really hold you hostage. And, and uh, that, that's really no good. So actually, you're just going, what's exciting and what's fun mm-hmm. and what's interesting? And, you know, you, like anything, again, and again, you're just trying. You know, you're not thinking about, well, I'm going to... You're thinking about well, let's just have a go at this, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, that's it's very exciting. Um, yeah. Uh, to to actually just to just do the job. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a thing I think that is kind of underestimated. Is, yeah, it is work, but it's great work. It's it's a huge privilege, and you have to enjoy it, you know. Because I think the other thing that that sort of in a, in a fan could do, the and I've seen it happen to other people a little bit on not just on Doctor Who but on other shows is. The, the fan can take you hostage and actually you're not going to enjoy the job. So actually you just go, look, I'm writing in the UK. It's like I'm writing a BBC One Saturday night show. It happens to be set in space and have a TARDIS in it. But actually what is going to be mm-hmm. thrilling for those people and, and exciting and actually what's going to be as great for nine-year-olds as it is for 40-year-olds. That's really, really important on Doctor Who. Um, and so you've got to engage those people. You're, mm. not, you're not just doing it for the sort of little guy inside your head going, oh, let's put in a line referring to 1967. You right. know? Um, uh, and I don't mean that to, to belittle that, you know, the no. fandom, because I'm, I, I, um, you know, as, as much uh, that lives within me as much as anything, but actually you're professional TV writer. You've got to get a job done. Yes. Did you... Did you approach, like, for example, Broadchurch mm. the same way? Did, was there the awareness that you're writing for an audience? Because this, yeah. again, this oh, isn't yeah. novels. No, more than anything, tour. I think, because that's why the, you know, Broadchurch is aggressively plotted <coughs> to the act breaks and the, mm. epi- and the, and the episode endings, um, where you're like, it's a big, you know, you look at the end of episode one, David Cameron's looking down the lens of the camera going, you know, I'm about to take you around all the suspects and we will catch this person. This is our, you know, it's, re- it's a, such a mainstream ending to episode one. It's going, we will catch the person who did this. Mm-hmm. Here is the story of the next seven weeks. We are going to catch this person, I promise. Mm-hmm. You know, it's my promise as a writer to the audience. And, and those really blatant uh, lines where you go, you, you're continually saying to the audience, this is what this is. Tell me. You know, and again, Russell had a great thing. He said, it's not, you know, you, the people say, show, don't tell. Russell was always like, show and tell. Because actually, <laughs> you did tell me it because actually things go by fast. Yeah. You know, so actually, you can always take stuff out. You never add it in. So sometimes you'll watch sequences on TV and think, I sort of know what they're doing, but nobody's telling me. Nobody's telling me this is exciting or nobody's telling me this is moving or funny. Or it's actually, That's you know, funny. so it's actually simplicity and clarity is a really... An undervalued and it, thing. It's, that's really interesting, especially considering, you know, we tie that back into 
what you were talking about earlier, where how does everybody in this scene feel? Yeah. Yes. That's, that's where you're going to see this yeah. is exciting or yeah. this is yes. boring or whatever. It's the it guy is. at the back of the bar going, you yeah. know, there's four people talking at the front <laughs> of the bar about an alien invasion. It's the guy at the back of the bar going, oh, my God, this is so exciting. Yeah, you're talking exactly. about an alien invasion. You know, it's that it's that kind of thing. You know? That's neat. Um, before we wrap up, mm-hmm. all right. So uh, we got Grace Point on TV now on yeah. Fox on yes. Thursdays. Yes. Which, uh, it is really good. I mean, it's it's amazing that it's on network television. Uh, everybody keeps saying that to me. Everybody keeps saying it's like a cable show, but it's on network. And I'm like, but it has to live on network, right? So it's you know, I think I think Dan Futterman and Anya Epstein uh, mm-hmm. who have done a really great job on it, and 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 Shine America and Fox. You know, they, all credit to them. They they really collaborated on on making that show. They were really up for it. So. You know, it's a it's it's a it's a crazy kind of experiment, really, yeah. and, and I feel very proud that we got to do it. That's that's great. Congra- congratulations. Uh, you see, it's, um, okay. it's been out now. It's okay. Um, are, and you're, are you working on a season two? Yeah, we're two weeks off finishing shooting. How? Okay, you understand. <laughs> Here we go. Here we go. You understand. Season one was complete. Like that yeah, is yeah. a story. Yeah. What do you I'm do for you an encore? <laughs> uh, well, you'll have to wait and see, won't you? I, I, like, I don't mean that flippantly. I think I really, I hope that's what people feel. And uh, what we're not going to do is we're not going to open with a body on the beach and, and David and Olivia looking down and going, oh, no, that's really unlucky. Second time, two, <laughs> twice in two years, and then before that, nothing. Um, it, it's not going to be that. It, it will be... It, it, it will be different, and the job of Broadchurch is to be bold and surprising, and I, I want it to be relatively uh, 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 new to the audience. So that's why we're playing our cards very close to our chest. You know, normally you say it's kind of this, you know. I can't wait. Um, I hope we can, I hope we can get to it with without much spoiled, and you know, who knows? But it, it will be different. But there will be people you love in it. Fantastic. It's also got Charlotte Rampling in, you know, so it's like, oh, you know, what do you, what do you want? Yeah, that's, un- that's unbelievable. Yeah, I gotta say, I mean, from season one alone, the cast is unbelievable. It's, I felt so lucky we got all our first choices. And, uh, you know, I think, I think the, uh, one of the great pieces of writing advice I was given right at the start of my career was just your job as a dramatist is write great parts for actors. That's really the job. Actually, more than anything we've talked about, that's as a dramatist, that's what you do. Make yeah. people want to get, they have to get up at five in the morning. You've got to make them want to do that. <laughs> That's great advice. Um, and you must have a million other things going on. I've got, uh, I deliberately keep it uh, relatively uh, controlled, particularly with Broadchurch going on at the moment. But I've got a, yeah, there's a feature I'm about to start working on. And um, uh, I had a play on last year. So I like to, okay. I, again, I like to not repeat myself. That's, that's nice. But yeah, it's, it's, it's very plotted through for a long time of I'm what sure. I'm doing. Um, and a feature, you're working on a feature? Yeah, I don't, it hasn't been announced, so I don't think I can tell okay. you what it is. No, but no, it's, no, I'm no. really, it's where we're really great people and on some really fantastic material. So I'm great. very excited. All right, well, good luck. Uh, and we end, as we always do, by asking, what are you watching on television? What are you getting excited about? What are you talking about with your family, your friends? Oh, wow. Golly, what are, what are we watching at the moment? There's so much stuff. I just really loved um, The Honourable Woman on the BBC, mm-hmm. uh, which I think played here on Sundance. It did. A really amazing show. Peaky Blinders has just come back in the UK, which is a really fun show. It's a really, really great show. Uh, I'm watching uh, Gumball with my kids. I really like that. <laughs> We're watching Gumball and Adventure Time. Um, uh, what else? The Great British Bake Off is the single greatest show on television. Have you had that here? Have you got an American no. version? Oh, my God. It's like people baking for an hour every week. It's the most exciting show on television. It's doing Baking ten... is the most boring kind of no, cooking. No, no. Oh, Ben, you wait. Give it a year. You'll be doing a Bake Off podcast. <laughs> really, that's the show. It's like it's doing 10, 11 million in the UK. It's bigger oh than Downton God. in the UK that's right hilarious. now. That's uh, hilarious. Yeah, it's really cool. Yeah. Great. I, guys, go torrent it. <laughs> <laughs> that's not where you expected to end this, is it? <laughs> no, nope, really not. But I can't wait to see it. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. I had fun. Thank you. Now leaving Nerdist.com. 